Well, some of you are, are going through the ABF class on John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, and that book was on my mind this week as I thought about these scenes here on Mount Calvary. Uh, as you know, John Bunyan wrote uh, the main character, Christian, he wrote him having a burden upon his back that was to be an example or an allegory for the burden of sin and guilt and shame, the, the coming judgment of God. And John Bunyan kept that burden on Christian's back throughout the beginning of the story until he reached one scene in particular, when he got to Mount Calvary. When Christian gets to Mount Calvary, he sees a cross at the top of the hill and a tomb at the bottom of the hill. And as he beholds the cross, his burden falls off his back, rolls down the mount, and falls into the tomb, never to be seen again. And uh, Bunyan writes these beautiful words. He says, he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. And after he cries for a little, he jumps up in joy, literally dancing, and sings this song. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. What a place is this. Here must be the beginning of my bliss. Here must the burden fall off my back. Here must the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Bunyan does such a good job at encapsulating what millions and millions and millions of people have found in the sight of Mount Calvary, that they have found their joy in Jesus' agony, They've found their life in Jesus' death. They've found their salvation in Jesus' name. As we look at Mark 15, we're looking at the most pivotal, most climactic moment in all of human history. This is the moment that Mark, throughout all his gospel, has been leading us up to. And as we look at this passage, we are beholding none other than the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, our only means of salvation. We are beholding the moment when it was done and completed for the receiving and for the accepting. So let's track through this. As we begin uh, Mark 15, we've first shown that Jesus, Jesus is the substitute for lawbreakers. He's the substitute for lawbreakers. Uh, it's now morning. Uh, if you take a look at verse 1, the chief priests that had uh, condemned him the night before take him over to uh, Pilate at the governor's headquarters so that he might be sentenced to death. The Jews, though they could hold their own court cases, were not, they did not have authority to sentence people to death. They needed Pilate for that, and so they bring him to Pilate. Now, Pilate is a, a very fascinating historical figure. He's a very complicated man. He was very good at what he did. He was the longest tenured Roman governor over Judea. He had done it for the longest time. But he had a little bit of a problem in that he was a very hard-headed man, in particular, hard-headed towards the Jewish people. Uh, there was a moment in history where he sought to enforce on the Jewish militia the wearing of the Roman Empire insignia on their military uniforms. That didn't go over well. That resulted in a five-day protest on his front lawn. 
uh, until he finally said, okay, you don't have to wear the insignia. There was another time where he had taken uh, quite a lot of funds from the Jerusalem temple to fund an aqueduct being built into the Jerusalem city to bring running water into the city. That wasn't uh, appreciated much either. That resulted in another protest in which he responded by having all the soldiers kill all the protesters. It was a very bloody day. So you could say that Pilate's relationship with the Jews was just a little bit complicated. In fact, the higher-ups often warned him that if he did not get his act together with the Jewish people, he would be relieved of being governor, and eventually in his career, that's exactly what happened. So Pilate is on his toes as the Jews bring this Jesus to him. Surely, uh, Pilate would have been aware of Jesus at this point because Jesus' following would have been so massive, and he would have probably been keeping his eye on the movement, but up to this point, Jesus was not a threat to the Roman Empire. As uh, Pilate interrogates Jesus, if you take a look at verses two through five, he ends in being amazed at Jesus. He interrogates him in verse two and says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, you have said so. In other words, so you would do well, Pilate, to think about that statement. The chief priests accusing him of many things, Pilate again asked him, aren't you gonna defend yourself? Do, do you not see all these charges being brought against you? And Jesus made no answer so that Pilate was amazed. Again, remember Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus will not defend himself. He is giving himself over to death. Well, his amazement of Jesus causes him pause, and Pilate actually seeks to defend Jesus. He sees a moment that he can maybe leverage in Jesus' favor because if you take a look at verse 6, we learn about a certain um, tradition that Pilate had with the Jewish people. In verse 6, it says, at the feast, the Passover, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. This is probably something Pilate started to kind of get on better terms with the Jews whom he had such a, uh, such a contentious relationship with. I'll give them a little favor at their big uh, Passover week by releasing them one of their own from prison. And here, just as Jesus is being brought, the crowd asks him to do that, and he sees an opportunity to maybe defend Jesus and deliver Jesus. If you take a look at verse 9, he says to the crowd, okay, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Here's this kind of sleazy, pagan, kind of not so great reputation governor who has more common sense and can see uh, and take the righteous stand than the esteemed, respected men of authority in the Jewish religious elite. What an irony that it's the pagan Gentile who's able to see things more clearly than the Jewish people here in this verse. Well, that's not going to work out for Jesus. Uh, in verse 12, uh, excuse me, verse 11, the chief priests stir up the crowd to have them release for them Barabbas instead. Verse 12, Pilate says, what shall I do with the king of the Jews? And they just continue to cry, 
crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Interestingly enough, the name Barabbas, Barabbas means son of the father. So Pilate literally is here asking the crowd, do you want the criminal, the unrighteous son of the father, or do you want the true righteous son of the father, the son of God himself, Jesus? And the crowd makes their decision, we'll take the criminal and you crucify Jesus. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst of criminals. It was a way of public shaming. It was a way of utter humiliation. And the chief priests knew if they could get Jesus crucified, then all of his followers would have shame heaped on them and his following and his movement would be put down for all time. Or so they thought. And in verse 15, Pilate, probably seeing uh, that Jesus here is a little bit uh, politically expedient for him, says, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivers him to be crucified. Surely there's a picture here, isn't there, of how Jesus is our substitute? Barabbas is the lawbreaker, the unrighteous one who gets released and gets to go free. Jesus is the one who is righteous, who has committed no evil, and he is the one who is delivered and sentenced guilty. In the same way, we are lawbreakers, and by his grace, we get to go free because he stands in our place as the righteous one to take on the just punishment. Paul put it this way in Romans 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still under condemnation, Christ stood in our place dying for us. 1 Peter 3, 18, Peter says, Christ suffered also once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He is the substitute for us as lawbreakers. But next, we see Jesus is our sacrifice for sin. Jesus is our sacrifice for sin. In verses 16 through 20, he's led over to the Roman uh, soldiers, and he is flogged, and he is mocked. Uh, The lordship of Jesus is being totally dishonored, totally disrespected. Here he is, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who could call legions of angels down to wipe out anyone that he wanted and he is being so publicly dishonored and disrespected. In verse 17, these soldiers clothe him with a purple cloak, twist together a crown of thorns, and, and they, they mock him. Hail, king of the Jews! And then they beat him. Flogging uh, back in the Roman Empire was an awful thing to go through, and it was meant to actually make the crucifixion go quicker, that the person might not suffer as much and might die more quickly upon the cross. They would use whips that had um, the pieces of bone and metal and different things so that as the whip went down into the flesh, it would stick, you'd pull it back out, and there would be just flesh ripping off of the body. Most likely, Jesus was so uh, flogged and so beaten in this way that his very organs could have been seen. So much flesh would have been ripped off of his body. 
In fact, he's apparently beaten so badly that if you take a look at verse 21, he's not even strong enough to carry his own cross. Verse 21, they had to compel a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, um, to carry his cross. So off he goes to his crucifixion. Now, this whole scene that Mark records is fraught, full of Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled in the scenes and actions of Jesus' crucifixion, showing that he is indeed the Messiah that God had prophesied of. He is the sacrifice that we were to look forward to. Uh, For instance, if you take a look at verse 23, verse 23, once they get to the mount, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. In Psalm 69, verse 21, uh, we're told, uh, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Uh, This was a concoction that many who were going through crucifixion often took. It was for medicinal purposes. It was of a very high alcohol content, and the idea was uh, you would drink this thing down, and the alcohol content would be so strong that you'd literally pass out so that you wouldn't have to be conscious through your uh, physical agony on the cross, but you would die unconscious on the cross. Jesus does not take the medicine. Making the point, I will embrace this suffering. I am willingly undergoing what I am undergoing. I, you are not taking my life from me. I am willingly laying it down for you. In verse 24, as he's crucified, his garments are divided and they cast lots. In Psalm 22:18, the prophecy, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Verse 27, he is crucified beside two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. In Isaiah 53:12, it was prophesied that he would be numbered among the transgressors. Of course, this awful wag, uh, um, the mocking in verses 29 through 32, both from the crowd, the passers-by, and the chief priests and scribes. And we're told in Psalm 22, verse 6 and 8, surely this is an echo of this, when David said, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Why these these scenes? What are we being taught as we see the suffering of Jesus in his crucifixion? He endured pain that we might be healed. He was stripped naked in shame that we might be clothed in his righteousness. He was counted a criminal that we might be declared innocent, justified, acquitted. He was mocked that we might receive words of comfort and love and consolation from God. 
Surely the crowd this day were completely ignorant of what they were doing. They did not know exactly what was going on in this scene, that on this Passover week, they were offering up the Passover lamb that would be for all the sins of the world. Jesus, in verse 33, as he has been hanging on the cross now for three hours... The moment is so solemn, God's judgment in this moment is so great that creation itself literally shuts the lights out and things go dark. Verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, he's been on the cross now six hours. Jesus cried with a loud voice, words that we can't imagine the Son of God uttering, words borrowed from Psalm 22 from the words of David. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll never be able to wrap our heads around this moment. How could it be that God could be forsaken by God? But what was happening to Jesus in this moment? He could feel the burden of all the sins. He, the sinless one. He, the perfectly righteous one. He, who would have no part in sin. All the sins of the world, your sin, my sin, being heaped on him in this moment. And the terror of it so great that he feels as though the father with whom he'd have perfect communion all his life, who is perfectly unified, who had nothing but love, it feels as though, as we sang, the father had turned his face away and he was utterly forsaken as the wrath of God descended on him in our place in that moment for all the sins of mankind. In verse 35, there's this strange thing about Elijah. Probably because of the agony of his cry, they they mistook Eloi, Eloi, for him calling out to Elijah. There was sort of a Jewish legend in Jesus' day because Elijah had been taken up into heaven that, and it was prophesied that he would come back, it was sort of a legend that in your moment of need, Elijah just might come down from heaven and deliver you from your moment of need. And so they think, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe Elijah will come. Maybe he will deliver Jesus. So verse 36, they, they give him a sponge with sour wine, and they say, wait, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. But of course, Jesus will not be delivered. He must be delivered unto death for the sacrifice for sin to be complete. And so verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The sacrifice is done. It is finished. And surely the crowd there that day had no idea at what just happened. And maybe you this morning can see yourself in the ignorance of this crowd. Maybe you know the fact that Jesus died on the cross. It's one thing to know that he died on the cross. It's an entirely different thing to understand what was happening in his death on the cross. Your sin being placed upon him and the wrath of God that should have been for and upon you 
coming upon him. As it says in Colossians, you were dead in your trespasses. Each one of us, as we sit here today, on our own, on our own track record, we're dead. There's, there's no amount of good works, no amount of good life, no kind of this, this popular idea of, well, maybe when I get to heaven, my, my goodness will outweigh my badness, I'll get graded on a curb. No, we're dead. We're dead in our trespasses. God made us alive. How? Having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We owe God a debt in our sin that we could never pay. And he set this record of debt aside by nailing it to the cross. Jesus was not the only thing nailed to the cross that day. But our sins were nailed there as well. This is the only way. This is our only confidence. There is no other way of salvation but trusting here in this sacrifice that is made. God's wrath justly falls upon sinners, and Jesus is the only way that God's wrath can be satisfied. But how do we know, how can we be confident that God is satisfied with the work that Jesus has done and that it is enough for us to be accepted by him? That takes us next to Jesus' sacrifice has satisfied God's justice, has satisfied God's justice. What happens immediately after Jesus dies in this text? Take a look at verse 38. Verse 38, this is amazing. Immediately after Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, the curtain in the Holy of Holies, where the great sacrifice was made, where only the chief priest was allowed to go in and offer up the sin for the atonement of the people. God, it had to have been God who, who, who uh, tore the curtain, because why else would it have torn from the top to the bottom? And in God's moment, satisfied with what Jesus has done on the cross, he says, it's done no more animal sacrifices needed. No more of this ritualism. No, the true sacrifice that all these sacrifices have anticipated and pointed to is now done. I have done it. I have offered up my lamb. He has died and my wrath is satisfied and now anyone can come into my presence through the blood of Jesus. As it says in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 19 through 20, we can have confidence to enter the holy places. How? By the blood of Jesus. Not by the way of ritualism and sacrifice, but by a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. The work is done. God is satisfied. As Jesus is dead, the sacrifice is complete. All that we needed accomplished. Well, this text goes on to show us that this sacrifice invites a response. This sacrifice that Jesus made invites a twofold response. Number one, the proper response to this sacrifice is belief and trust and faith 
in Jesus as the Son of God, as the only Savior, as the only Lord, the only Lamb, the only sacrifice that can take away the sins of the world. I love this. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but what happens directly after the curtain is torn? Take a look at verse 39. Directly after the curtain is torn and God's wrath is satisfied and the Holy of Holies is open to anyone who would come through the blood of Christ, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, looks at Jesus, seeing the way he has died, and he says, truly, this man was the son of God. The curtain is torn in two. And immediately, a Gentile says, Jesus is the Son of God. Belief, trust in Jesus, that he is who he said he is. We must come with the empty hands of faith, bringing, bringing none of what we have done, but rather laying aside all that we have done and uh, trusting in Christ alone as who he said he is. Belief in Jesus, but also also, courage now to serve Jesus. We're introduced, we didn't read it in our scripture reading, but if you take a look at verse 42 and 43, we're introduced to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And his credentials are important to understanding just how significant uh, what he's doing is. In verse 43, we're told that he's a respected member of the council of the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus to die. He's one of the elite. He's one who stood for all that the chief priests, scribes, and elders stood for. And what is significant in verse 43 is it says he was looking for the kingdom of God. And apparently he'd found it. He'd found it in the person of Jesus. And what does he do? Verse 43, he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took courage. Now, it may seem like a small thing to us, right? Uh, it was a simple gesture. Uh, Jesus has died. I would like his body so that I can go and give him a decent burial. A, a simple thing. But think about the great sacrifice that Joseph in that moment is actually making. A respected member of the council, he's going to lose his reputation among all of his brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith by associating with this Jesus. He's going to lose his reputation in the broader Roman society as a man who would show such care and decency and uh, identify with a man who would be crucified. He's putting his entire reputation on the line to serve Jesus the only way he knows how. How will he serve him? I'll give Jesus a proper burial. Surely, uh, Joseph had to count the cost and decide because of what Jesus has done for me, I will do what I can for him. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I thought about Paul and thinking about Joseph of Arimathea this week. The apostle Paul, who was of a man of high esteem in, in the, the Jewish religion. And what did he say in Philippians 3? Having come to see and, and trust in Jesus, he said, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For, the sa- for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as dung, the KJV says, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, all my great accolades of, oh, look at me and all that I've accomplished, but finding the only righteousness that pleases God, the righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And certainly the call of Calvary is the same for us. We are to behold the scene. We are to see that all the work is done by Jesus. We are to see that our sins can be dealt with in the cross and that we can escape the condemnation of God. And we lay down all that we are trusting in and we trust rather in him and his work laying it all down to have him and him alone. And in response, knowing that he has given his all, we give our all. As Paul said in Romans 12, appeal to you, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, in light of what he has done for us in Christ, present your bodies now as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We place our faith in the work of Christ and we live a life of absolute gratitude and service for all he has done that we might be reconciled and saved. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life my all. A moment of silence as the worship team comes up. And let's just pray in the privacy of our own hearts.